This is Mike Tolkien in New York, and I'm back for a second helping of Rugger Matrix USA. Yes, thanks, Mike. Joining us for episode 11 of Rugger Matrix USA. Apologies for last week. We disappeared off the radar with a technical glitch. Lots of trial rugby being played down in Florida. We get the latest from Mike Tolkien and Bruce McLean on Rugger Matrix episode 11. Yes, hello and welcome to Rugger Matrix USA, episode 11. A few technical difficulties last week, but we are back and ready to fire this week. Uh, good evening, good afternoon, good something to you, Bruce McLean. Yeah, Gerald, good talking to you again. It was unfortunate that we had a technical glitch last week, did a full show and just couldn't get it up. But uh, this weekend we're down in Fort Lauderdale at the Fort Lauderdale Rugger Fest, which is always an, an amazing time and, and a wonderful tournament. But... There was, a, there was a bit of sad news. Uh, one of the players from the Albany Knickerbockers who was playing for Boston Irish uh, injured his neck. And there's been a lot of speculation as to what happened. And, and the family had asked that we read the, the following on, on the podcast just to clear things up. And it's basically from Charles Colley, the point of contact for the family. And it says, as I have stated, I would like to supply you with all the most up-to-date information on our friend Michael Jones. Jones injured his neck yesterday while playing rugby in a, in a rugby tournament in Fort Lauderdale. I'm sorry to give you this news. He and his family will need our immediate, immediate support in the days, weeks, and years ahead. As of, as of last night, Michael came out of surgery. He's resting in the ICU. His wife, Lisa, and his father are in Fort Lauderdale with Michael at his side. I understand that we all want to help, but we need to give respect to Michael's immediate family and give them the space and time that they need to be by his side while they sort things out. It goes without saying that the Albany Knickerbocker family will be there for him and his family. As soon as we can more fully understand what Michael and his family's needs are, we will organize fundraising activities to help them get, ever, get through whatever challenges may lay ahead. I would appreciate if there is one single point of contact, Charles Colley of the Albany Rugby Club, to mitigate any rumors and misinformation. I ask you to be patient with news and please pray for Michael and his family. Um, yeah, it was a very serious injury and, and, and Mike has a two-year-old daughter and, uh, you know, and, and that's really all that they wanted to get out there now. And, and he's trying to recover and just keep him in your thoughts and prayers. He's, he's one of the really great men of, of rugby on the East coast of the United States. Uh, very well loved. Uh, and, and, I played against him for many years. He's he's uh he's a great guy, and and this is very unfortunate. Well said, Bruce. Thank you very much. And we do, our thoughts do go out to the family, and the details will be on our website. Now let's move on to the rugby itself for the weekend and bring in Mike Tolkien. Mike, uh, good to speak to you again. Apologies for last week's technical glitch, but uh, from a rugby point of view, how was Florida? Sure, it was good to be down. Uh, you know, a lot of the northeast teams get little uh, big cubby hold up here with the snow and the weather and we're in gyms so it was good to actually get on a field and start playing some rugby and spreading it out a bit so it's it's always a useful uh venue for all the northeast team and we certainly got three games out of it and sharpened our play and our fitness and our coaching uh ability so very much worthwhile in the fort lauderdale people do great great work there with the tournament yeah drew i'd like to say that 
that there's there's a bunch of teams in the Super League that have really uh, stepped up, and, and Boston Rugby Club being one of them, and they've really improved their level of play, and they're going to be a force to be reckoned with. And I think that people are starting to take playing rugby very seriously. The guys are fitter, they're a little bit stronger, they're a little bit bigger, and technically and tactically, they, they're seeming to make a lot better decisions than they had in the past, and that's across the board, and it was it was really heartening to see, and it was, there was a lot of good rugby down there, and it was... It, and it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of fun. One of the things that came into play, and I know it's been discussed on Rugged Matrix International, was the tackle area. And unfortunately, it was after the tournament when uh, Mike Tolkien and I had a discussion with Dave Audrey, our, our one of our premier rec- referees, and Ed Todd, who was the uh, who was the chairman of referees in in for U- USA Rugby, and. Maybe Mike would want to talk us through some of the details of the tackle area because it, it wasn't clarified in the guidelines to the application of the law as it was given to the coaches. But the way Davey and Ed described it was actually pretty good. So, Mike, if you could take us through that, it would be pretty helpful. Yeah, one of the things that they're really, uh, that they're really focusing on this year is, is having the, the uh, tackler roll away, get away as quickly as possible. You know, that's something that's always been in the rules, obviously, the interpretations and laws. But... This year, they're really paying it a lot of uh, a lot of mind, and also the idea of making it clearer to the to the referees what's happening that you are making an attempt and how Ed and and Davey described it to us in our little chat was after you've made the tackle and you're getting up to your feet to try to play it is to basically butterfly and that is kind of get the hands back to show that they've come away from the ball carrier, the tackle player, and the ball. And then you could bring them immediately back. So kind of the, the motion of a, of a butterfly, if you will. And you know what? It was just a simple little uh, analogy or image that made it so much clearer. And it would have been good if you know we, we had all been on the same page from the get-go with that image because that makes it clear what they want us to do. And so we can go with that. And the players that were there understood it quickly. And it wasn't anything intentional that they left it out. It was just they happened to be talking to us, and that was great, and we all understood it. So that, I think over the next couple of weeks – you know, with Richard Every and, and, and the referees, we're going to try to get this conversation going so we're all very clear on what they expect. Uh, because it's hard in the early days, and it was in Florida for the referees and ourselves to know exactly where each other was coming from. Mike, the other thing that they were they were talking about was the second man in and when he has, when can he access the ball and what kind of motion does he have to be doing when, when he's trying to access the ball and, and, and when does it become illegal? Well, that second man in, uh, let's say our player has made the tackle and he, he's rolled away or attempts to get to his feet. That second player is usually on immediately as the tackle is made. And players are usually the first guy there is looking to slow that ball down. Uh, so they have a right to the ball as long as no one else is there. The motion that they have to have is in a positive motion of trying to steal the ball rather than palms down or holding it in. And they have to make an attempt to actually get the ball rather than be uh, be destructive or, or negatively hindering it. Um, as soon as a player from the other team has come in and engaged, the hands must be out. And obviously the referees are instructed. They should be saying uh, no hands, ruck formed. Um, and, and most of the time they do that very well. So his rights are, are over, you know, as long as he's come through the, uh, the gate, of course, uh, you know, preceding that when the engagement has come from that first uh, clear out player from the opposition. And one of the other things that 
they they really talked about the double up tackle. If 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 you engage the ball carrier as he's being tackled, and 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 go for the ball, then you are considered part of the tackle. And that was that was a real bit of confusion there because guys and 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 the body sack. If you could talk us through those things, like kind of you got to stay away until the tackle's made and then play it, and and also if a guy body sacks into you and you have the ball as he's going down. While you're still on your feet, you still have to butterfly. Could, could right. There's two things there. Is the, the the one aspect when you have a uh, a player, whether you've thrown him to ground um, or whether you know he's kind of gone to ground on his own without you actually tackling him. Uh, the number one thing is you are considered a tackler, uh, and you have to observe the laws uh, of the tackle area. That you know basically that's going down to the knee butterflying, and then you become able to play the ball. Um, so you can't just throw the guy down and take the ball. Right? You have to observe the laws uh, of, the, of the second man in. Uh, the other one is interesting. If, if two players are going for the ball, um, you know, and one has his hands on it with the ball carrier, first guy that goes down to the ground has to give way to the person who is still on his feet. Okay, so that basically, go, you know, it becomes – from a mall to a ruck. But if one player is on his feet, the man on the deck has to give way and release the ball to the player who is on his feet. Okay, and that's something that's a that's something a distinction that, that I think it's, it, it can be difficult to referee at times when when players start coming in quickly uh, and they can be a little mucking around, there can be some dark area in there and bodies in the way. So that's important. But I think the, the subtlety on the player who's been thrown to the ground the player who has done that, if he's not behind the ball, must retreat through the gate okay? or else has to go down to the ground, butterfly, and then he can make a play for it. Well, gentlemen, that uh, has been in effect for several weeks in the Super 14. Uh, they were supposed to do some of that in the Six Nations this week, although I guess the final implementation is up for debate. Uh, it has started to swing back towards the defensive team a little bit, but there was a game in Queensland between the Reds and uh, the Blues from Auckland, the whole thing threw out, flew out the window because it was, it was driving rain, chaotic at the breakdown, and certainly it didn't appear to be refereed in the same way. I think it, I think the Super League's in for some uh, teething problems early on. There's no doubt about that. Well, they have made a distinction in the Super League, Juro, that they are going to referee to the Super 14 standard, not to the standard in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment. So I would imagine we'll go through our competition ending in late May or early June, uh, hopefully late May if they have their head together. Um, then, and, and I think that that's going to be, that our interpretation is going to be the Super 14 interpretation. There will be teething problems, but it, w it was good this weekend to be able to get some of that stuff out of the way. Um, you'll find and, what you'll find, Bruce, is that it'll be heavy, heavy in favour of attack, and then people will say, "Look, we need to pair it back." The referees have to get used to this as well. You know, it's a lot more taxing for the referee at the breakdown, and they they still have to do their job and on the offside line as well. Yeah, no doubt about you know, it. it. Uh, it's the, it becomes it becomes tough. I mean, it's uh, the referees have a very difficult job in this area because. Uh, the lawmakers are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to interpret it as best they can. But the bottom line is, until it becomes absolutely clear, uh, it, it, it's a very difficult thing to do. And even last year's, uh, you know, some of the stats out of the Tri-Nations tournaments, 
you know, show that teams are reluctant to get involved in these tackle areas in their own end because uh, of the possibility of penalty. You know, only 10% of all the tries in the Tri Nations came from plays starting in their own end. Hmm. Um, the ruck penalties favored the defense by a little over 50%. Uh, you know, and, and that shows an indication of teams' reluctance to, to, to play it because they're, they're losing a lot of ball. And, and Juro, as you said, you know, the referees are going to have to back off a little bit and let them play. Um, however, you know, can we do things to make things uh, to make things a little better uh, in terms of easier on the refs so players, coaches, teams don't have to rely on them at that area where it can be difficult and to let it go? You know, do you go as so far as to say the defenses cannot play the ball from a, a tackled player's hand? They can only counter ruck. You know, in this way, the ball there's no decision making by the referee, and you know, it, it's clear, and teams can actually play ball without having, having to worry about it. Now, some people say, well, it's going to eliminate any type of co contest for the ball. You know, teams will just spread, play defense with 14, 13, 12 players up, mm. um, and there'll be no play. But I still think turnover ball and counter ruck is very good, uh, is very good uh, ball to play from, and I think it's dangerous. I don't think that, that is a danger of happening. But, you know, it's tough. In the, in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, in not only Tri Nations, but I thought in the tournaments around the world, the game was fast. There was many, there were many phases to it. You know, you had the Brumbies, you had the Blues who were playing these games that were multi-phase and fast ball. But then there were teams who, you know, it, it moved to teams that could slow down the ball at the break then and having sevens come in and slow it down. So, uh, you know, it'll interest, interesting to see how this plays out. But it's still difficult for the referees. All I know is that uh, we've already experienced it in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, there will be some teething problems that uh, I think in the spirit of rugby, it's okay. A lot of feedback to the international show, though, gentlemen, with people not happy at all with uh, the Southern Drive. For it's actually been seen as a North v South thing, particularly in Europe and uh, and in Sanzar. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the Super League teams handle it first up. But what, what you're telling me, everyone's reasonably positive about it. And uh, it does promote positive play. There was a wonderful game between the Bulls and the Waratahs. Uh, it was 48-38. But forget the scoreline. It was actually quite a gripping uh, contest. And it had everything, everything from set pieces to con continuity. And, um, you know, those, those good games can still be played and, you know, it was refereed really well. That's what we're looking for, Jiro. That's what we need. There's no doubt about it. We need to have that kind of, we need to have that kind of play. Absolutely. And, and Bruce, well, uh, do you want to, uh, okay, so we've, we've dealt with the breakdown. We, we'll talk about that a bit more as we uh, progress. But there are a number of other issues that we wanted to cover last week, Bruce, we didn't get to. But uh, let's uh, fire off with them now. Yeah, we're going to get started. Hey, Mike, we wanted to talk about how you felt in attack when we want to follow up on Eddie O'Sullivan's conversation a bit. Um, playing with your forward pack in support of your backs, what are the advantages and disadvantages of spreading the forwards, kind of one guy in behind each of the backs or on the inside of each of the backs versus bunching the forwards and smashing them up and kind of looking for a looking for a heavy penetration in the midfield and what do you well, prefer I think, I think when you when you have a, a group together the first thing is that they're easier to defend um i mean you're gonna have to stand up and uh you know get some aggro and and, and really make your your hits but if you can do that which most players can now um i, I think it's easier to defend um but when you have your forwards spread out into lanes 
running off ball carriers and, and you know who have channels created, I think it's much difficult, more difficult to defend. Um, you double up tackles and your tackles on the ball have to be really accurate. Um, you know, and, and it just makes a much more dynamic game. And now, you know, as you said earlier in the show, with uh, with with players being bigger and stronger on a lot of teams and faster, you know, you have forwards who can charge through gaps and, and take the half break and the offload. And, you know, it's very difficult to stop. You know, you might not stop them totally, uh, totally, but they've done the damage of making 10, 15, you know, yards of penetration. With the uh, with all the forwards in a bunch, you know, it might be four yards and a cloud of dust, as the old football saying goes. And, you know, that's one way to play the game. But, you know, given the athletes that we have out there now, um, and we're seeing some, you know, in some of the Super Leagues, we were, this weekend we were pretty impressed by these guys' fitness and size and, and speed. Um, it, it's just, a, I think, a more dynamic way. And as our skills of, of, of ball carriers and strikers pick up, you know, and we're able to feed these guys and recognize them running off us. Then it's certainly uh, it's certainly a dynamic way and very difficult to, to stop. Yeah, no, I, I I do agree with you, Mike. And I you know I just but you know I just wanted to get into that. Now I want to talk about another little thing. Using the kick to score try, like using a good kicking game so that you could spread defenses and open up defenses to score more tries out of the hand. What are different ways that you would use the kicking game, essentially to manipulate the back three, so that you can get a little bit more of a spread in the midfield to score a bit of to to penetrate gaps and and score more tries through the hand yeah the kicking game is you know hey it's the forward pass of rugby uh it can be used as a really dangerous weapon and uh the teams that can do it um have a nice uh, alternative uh nice tool in their repertoire uh things uh things aren't going well in the hand or defenses are being super aggressive um Certainly some of the ways with blitz defenses now and uh, as teams are creating ways and pattern attack patterns to deal with it, uh, certainly with that center and sometimes the open side wing coming in hard to, uh, to kind of seal the, uh, the ball on the inside, the kick to the open side um, and outflanking them is a great option. Um, you know, if you have a fullback coming, you know, as, as your only defender to get that ball, uh, A, he's got to catch it out of the air, which he might not. If he does, he might have a wing, a fullback, and even a blindside wing coming to, to tackle him, to strip him, to put him into touch. Uh, so that's that. You know, that's certainly an option to, to beat the blitz defense. Uh, if you have super aggressive wings um, on the defense, um, just putting balls, you know, down into the corners uh, where the fullback has to cover uh, 75 yards across is no easy task. Um, and a good organized kick chase really puts pressure you you have fast guys moving up into space you know the old expression you know uh kick to hand not uh kick to land not to to hand uh certainly comes into play and you know i, I think the, uh, the the wings coming up creates a lot of opportunities for that um again a super aggressive defense coming up leaves little uh, opportunities for chips over the top little grubbers so there's all kinds of uh, opportunities to, to to get into score trying position and to create some uh, attack through kick. And, you know, it, it, it's like you say, whatever the defense gives you is what you have to play. Entry is our kicking game. You know, it's never been especially strong. And I think if we, the more we can get our, uh, our youngsters and our high school guys and co collegiates uh, kicking correctly, and even just kicking, uh, the better we'll be in the future because that's definitely a skill that we're going to need with, with better, more organized defenses uh, who are strong, fast, and well, well prepared to, to shut down the running game.
Well, as we get to that, you were talking about manipulating defenses. One of the ways you like to manipulate defenses is using formations. How do you use different formations in your backline play to manipulate defenders and kind of isolate people that you want to target and who you may find as a weak defender or just try to get your your excellent strike runners into one-on-one situations and, and take a flyer on whether or not they're going to break the game line? Can you just talk, talk us through some of that kind of stuff that you do? Yeah, you know what? Defense is always uh, it's always a trade-off, you know. To, when you want to defend against one thing, it leaves something else a little more vulnerable. And I think that's what you want to eye as far as uh, how you create mismatches. Um, you know, for example, there are, there are very obvious and simple mismatches where if you have a lot of space off a scrum, if you have a lot of space, say, to the right, and you have an especially fast or gifted runner, uh, you can just move him into that space and, you know, maybe move the wing out if it's not he's not the guy. And just do kind of like the old basketball, you know, box and one. Put your, put your guy in one-on-one and let's see if you can stop him. You know, just old uh, schoolyard stuff where your your best player is going to get the ball and let him do his magic. Um, in terms of uh, formations, uh, I think you can uh, try to manipulate the fences. Say something like you took your outside center, winger, and fullback, put them all the way to one side of the field, have your fly half, uh, your blind side wing and inside center on the inside. See how the defense reacts. Sometimes, sometimes the defense is going to panic, break apart uh, their defensive line, leave a big gap in the middle, or maybe a big gap on the inside, or maybe they don't bother, and you have guys on the outside who can get a, uh, an attack going through a cross kick, or uh, maybe you know a, a good long pass uh, off a say a lineout. You know, changing fields often in lineouts and scrums. That blind side is going to be covered by big forwards, a lot of times front rowers. Now, you could look at him and say, hey, first of all, it's a big fella. Maybe he's not as mobile. Secondly, he's trying to tackle off his left shoulder. Uh, what we're going to do is attack with one of our better runners uh, to the right side. So he's, got, he's on his good step. He's running a guy who can't keep up with him into a gap. And uh, that's another way of manipulating the defense. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of the ways that you can, you can toy with the defense a little bit. But really, you know, take take your opportunity, such as a scrum, when you have a lot of space, because there you have 16 players in, in your scrum plus the halfbacks, a lot of space to manipulate, and, and start working on, uh, on on manipulating those spots, because oftentimes you have a lot of room to work with, and if you have the ability, you can really get creative. But the one thing I, I, I do hesitate is to get too creative. You know, I think a fundamental of rugby is you got to earn your, your, your width by being able to hit up the middle. And that doesn't mean running your biggest guy, you know, like the, you know, the old days, in, into them and smash it right into the guy in front of you. But manipulate some space. You know, even though there, there are defenders in front of you, there's a lot of space to be had. Well, I want to talk a little bit about line breaks. When you make your line break, a lot of times what, what players do is they support and they start to run – almost away from the runner and get themselves into a big channel of space, but it forces, you know, it's tough to make a 10 or 15 yard pass when guys are bearing down on you. What are some of the things that you do to try to, you know, what are some of the things you tell your players when there's a line break, how should they support the, uh, how should they support that break so that there's a better chance of um, getting an offload or, or, or using it to good effect? Well, you know, the, no matter what happens in the game, there's no denying that good good support comes from behind. Uh, you have a line break. 
you need the guys to get behind that ball. Uh, the reason for this is that you have all the options you need. I mean, the ball carrier is the man dictating the action. Uh, you don't know if he's going to move left. You don't know if he's going to move right. Um, you don't, you don't want to cut out your option and just give yourself a 50% chance. You get behind that line, that, that ball carrier who's made the break, let him do his thing. You're there in some depth right behind him to react to any type of opportunity. It might be an offload from contact. It could be a little chip ahead. It might be just pulling a man aside and putting you away to the left or the right. So I think that's paramount in line breaks is, is get behind your ball carrier, give him his space to do his thing, and then give him the option once he's made his choice to, to make the, the, the correct option and to get the ball in your hands and a better chance to score. Well, while we're on the subject of manipulating defenses with formations, what about setting up defenses to gain mismatches in subsequent phases? Like, what are some of the things that you do to set up a defense with, you know, hitting a target here or hitting a target here, then here, and then coming back to, to set up mis mismatches in subsequent phases, either a, a winger on a prop or a, or a, a, a powerful running lock against a fly half so he's got his height and he can uh and he could use an offload maybe run over him a little bit what are some of the things that you look for there to try to manipulate defenses in subsequent phases well i i think that in some opportunities you know what's going to happen you know we we talked about from a line out uh most times you're going to have uh you're going to have slower people there and uh, like i said this is the better up you go, the higher up you go these days, there's not too many bad athletes. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter whether you're in high school ball or, or an international. It's all relative. A great runner, um, it, you know, is going to be better than, than a prop, you know, in terms of open field uh, abilities. Um, and I think we can dictate those times that we can manipulate people and, you know, use that. But, for example, a seven is going to get, you know, maybe he's the best tackler on a team. Maybe the five is the best pack tackler on the team, maybe the eight. You know there are moments when in first phase they're going to be jammed into a ruck. So we know that, that seven, who's their best poacher, their best tackler, the best slower down of the ball, uh, seven, maybe eight, are going to be in a, in a particular area. And that next phase is going to go to manipulate it. Maybe one of their weaker backs is going to be out there in second phase where you get your number eight or your number six or your lock to manipulate them. Maybe he's small. You use your lock to fend him off. And it could easily pass out of contact. So I, I think predicting some situations, and some of it's just naturally being able to, to predict it. Other times, you know, as, as you get the, these opportunities to look at film, you know their tendencies. Um, you know that seven and eight are going to be tied up in that first ruck, perhaps. And in that second, in that second ruck uh, or attack area, you're going to have a weak tackler at the second defender or the third defender. Um, and, and those are certainly ways that you could look to do, to uh, manipulate the uh, the defense. Juro, I've been kind of taking all the questions. Do you want to have a go with it, or keep on, let me keep rolling? Uh, no, you're 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 rolling well. But I will throw something in here, Mike. Uh, when you in talking about bending the defense, there, what about the spot defender? I mean, how much do you concentrate on picking out the weak defender? And you know, you might have a brilliant fly half, but most. Most of the time, they can't tackle. I mean, uh, how much work do you do you put into that, or can it be fool's gold sometimes? Because uh, teams who have that player will obviously make adjustments for that. Yeah, you know what, Juro, uh, you bring up a really good point. Um, you know, the, the weak tackler getting hidden in the line. You know, uh, 
uh, many times it's a fly half, and certainly I'm not, not, not saying that fly halves are not good tacklers, but that's one of the areas. Uh, occasionally it's a wing, but whoever it is, sometimes an attacking team will spend too much time uh, trying to attack that area and going for it. And as you said, they've covered well. They've come up with a defensive plan that covers him well. And so instead of coming out with something that you expected to be a long gain or a quick ball because he, he tackles at the ankles or allows offloads, uh, instead maybe you have a, a, an eight or a seven or a scrum half who's in there covering. Uh, also, you know, the problem with that is you've spent so much time attacking on the inside, attacking on the inside, and perhaps you've, you've let your, your uh, gifted center runner or your gifted fullback uh, stay out of the game just because you've concentrated too much on, on attacking that point. So there, there are problems with overcompensating and try to manipulate a defense. And, uh, you know, you, you definitely have to be careful because I know in this age of technology where people are, you know, team international teams are given computers and they, they have footage and that's been cut and they know their opponent and their every move. And, you know, you got to be careful to overdo it and to take away the flair of some of your better players who, you know, innately know how to run and how to beat someone. Um, you know, do they overthink too much uh, and lose some of their natural flair? Uh, and, and then, you know, teams who have compensated to cover for these weak spots. You know, you might be coming into a brick wall and you boom, your game plans out. So it's something to keep an eye on, but you have to be careful not to overdo it, I think. Are you better off saving that uh, attack in the weak channel that he's defending in for the big play later on when they're not expecting it? Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, you, you certainly want to keep some uh, some some cards to your chest. You know, if you came out in, in the third minute of the match and the sixth minute of the match, and, and you've run that play, and that was going to be your big one. You know, it, it's it, it's the matchup that you want, and it's the guy who has it against the weaker tackler. And in minute three, he's broken you know, five, tw- ten meter run, or he's offloaded. And in minute six, he's had success. And then in minute ten, in minute twenty, they've made an adjustment. At halftime, they've made an adjustment. That's not there anymore. And you have a tie game. It's 75th minute. They prepared for it. And that play that could have been, you know, pulled off for the winning try or the go-ahead try, you know, maybe isn't there anymore. Um, and, and that's a great point. You know, don't show your hand too early because when you're playing good teams and good coaches and, and, and good strategists and captains, they're going to make they're going to make preps for that. They're going to make adjustments for that. Well, we want to get into another thing: the debate. Attacking off a scrum versus attacking off a line-out. Which do you prefer? What are some of the advantages and disadvantages of each? And uh, and then we'll get into the, the old not-straight line-out and kind of teams automatically take the scrum when that may not necessarily be their best attacking platform. Yeah, well, you bring up a good point, Bruce, because uh, with lineouts and scrums, you know, they've become they've become really one of the paramount uh, times to attack effectively and penetrate the line. Scrums, have, uh, as we said before, just leave a lot of field open uh, to be covered with uh, with 16 men in, uh, or 18 men in a, in a small area. Uh, I think that's an excellent place to attack. Uh, I really like attacking there. A couple of weeks ago, you know, just watching France play Ireland, they did some great attacking uh, play off, off the scrums and made good penetration against a tough Irish defense, you know, a good Irish defense. And uh, I really like the scrum. Um, one of the problems uh, that the scrum has, it doesn't always, you know, you can't always rely on it for clean ball. Uh, teams are wheeling and screwing and playing with each other. Uh, a bad bounce could put it against the head. 
Uh, it's not always 100% reliable. Um, you get it where you want it and how you want it. So that that brings a little variable into it. You got to be careful of. The lineout gives you a lot of space in front of you. Um, again, with that, you know you can't you can't certainly uh, count on your uh, your lineout to win. Um, I think I think lineout ball gives you good momentum. I like lineout ball as as a momentum. Um, sometimes you get it with your big boys in hand, and and you're making some good go forward yards, and it really creates not only from going off the top and your scrum half having a little run and holding people, but your big boys running onto it and, and making go forward yards. Uh, I think scrums you can get pretty creative to cause breaks and half breaks, and, and leave, it really has there's a lot of space to attack there. And that's the nice things about scrum. Uh, your point about lineouts, you know, in in the old days, you know, when we were playing. You know, if you if you if it was not in straight and you took a line out, you know, people would start talking. And be, you know, there was the, the macho thing. You know, oh, you you can't scrummage with us. And sometimes people would make a decision, and, and these were strictly you know amateur things, but a decision based on bravado and macho of you know having the, the big scrum. Uh, I think you have to be smart if you're getting good uh, platform from your line out, uh, and you're making good go forward ball, and it's a great uh, base for your to launch your attacks. Then go with it. Take take the tactic that's better for you, and you know uh, it, it should have nothing to do with you know the macho or sometimes the knee jerk. You know, oh, scrum will will take a uh, scrum, sir. And I think that that's got to be calculated carefully by your on on field decision makers. Well, there was a great example, gentlemen, in the uh, Six Nations of the weekend. Ireland's winning try came from a line out ball off the top and a first phase. Uh, move, wonderful try by Tommy Bow. Had a great game. So um, it can be done, and it can be done in the biggest of games uh, still, which is great to see. Um, that our obsession with just scoring after miles and miles of face play. So, yep, the lineout's still a, a good tool if you can perform a good lineout, Mike. Though, Mike. Yep, that's it. I mean, that's a you know, that's not a that's not a given, and. Uh, you know, Ireland is always, uh, you know, certainly the last year that I've been looking at them from a uh, from a de defensive standpoint, they've used that blindside uh, well, that blindside wing well. And I know when we were preparing for them, you know, we, we had to uh, put in some uh, some people to deal with that. You know, our tail gunners had to deal with that at the end of the lineout and watch for him. And it, it creates a threat and it, it, it stops the drift from coming over. And as you said, it can go over the line. You know, in our first show, we talked about I think it was Brian O'Driscoll scoring off a scrum from, uh, you know, in the last minute, last play of the game against Australia, you know, on a blown coverage. So these uh, these first phase tries, these set piece tries can happen, Juro, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's exciting to see. Bruce, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for the scrum, Bruce, from a defensive point of view, you know, you talked about on the show that we, uh, we couldn't get to wear about the communication. Uh, at the back of the scrum. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of tries I noticed the last two weeks in particular thinking about it um, where where the communication may not have been there and and, and, the, and the number seven and the number eight couldn't quite see what was happening uh, over the scrum. You know, it's a little thing, but same, probably something that a lot of people don't think about it, that you can't clearly see the attack from the back of a scrum if you're not up quick or you don't have the communication ready. I tell you, Bronk... Uh... It actually happened to us on the weekend. We, we had an attacking scrum five yards out with about a 25-yard blind, and we had, we had a move on going to the right, and our eight and nine miscommunicated, and our eight thought it was going to the left, so he looked left. 
he actually did get the pass off to to complete the move, but the timing was disrupted and we didn't score. And it was it should have just been a walk in try. And you know, and and those that communication at the, that's one of the reasons that taking a scrum as a knee jerk reaction when you have a scrum or line out choice isn't always a smart thing, because. The, you can have an excellent scrum that's very physical and, and can drive a team off the ball, but if you don't channel the ball well, if you don't use it well, if your eight and nine aren't completely in sync, it, it, it may be a better opportunity to do something else. And actually, that leads into the, the, final, the final point of discussion that we wanted to get into with Mike. A lot of times teams get penalties in 10, 15, 12 yards, 5 yards from goal – and they automatically kick a corner and take a line out. And, and the rate of return on that is not always that good. Some teams also knee-jerk reaction to take a scrum. And a lot of times teams won't run it. And sometimes when a guy runs it, he just kind of runs it on his own. Like um, T- Tomas O'Leary ran against France and he got bottled up at the end of the half when they could have taken an easy three. And, you know, I, I just want to talk to Mike about what are the options? How should you have ways to score from different things that you do down there? And, and what are the benefits and, uh, and deficiencies of all three of your options, running it, taking a line out, and taking a scrum? Uh, you know, sometimes that, uh, that penalty inside the 22 causes a lot of consternation for teams. Uh, do, we, do we kick? Do we scrum? Do we run? Do we line out? You know, it, there's all kinds of – you know, the one thing that you have to be prepared for as a team – is you have to have your options. You know, if you're not going to take your points, and, and, you know, I'm a traditionalist in taking the points, but for whatever reason, you're not taking your points through the kick. Um, I think you have to have go-to plays. You know, these are plays that we're, we're expecting to score on, and we've, we've practiced them. we picked them for a reason because we think that they can succeed, um, and it should be one, for, or one or two for a lineup. There should be one or two for a scrum. And there should be one or two if you just decide to run it from a, from a tap. Um, and they also should be considered lefty and righty from the left side of the field to the right side of the field uh, because there are different circumstances uh, in, in each. Uh, the one thing is, you know, if you're going to tap on your own, you know, as a cowboy, you better score. If you don't, got, if you don't score that, you have some uh, answering to do your coach, and certainly he's not going to be happy. Um, with a scrum um, – couple of the the advantage again inside the 22 you have uh, you have space not as much as when there's space when there's real estate behind the uh, the defense that they have to cover but you have some space that you can manipulate okay? the problem is you can't be guaranteed to win you can't get, be guaranteed that it might not be put in straight there might be a free kick some argy bargy by the front row so the, the scrum while being a good platform to launch from uh, with some space and like that isolation I was talking about before, if you have a big right side or left side to use, can be good, but it's not guaranteed. A line out, uh, while most teams don't challenge, uh, you usually can win. But the thing is, the rate of return is not very high, as uh, I think you mentioned. Um, people think, you know, kicking it to the five and driving it in gets a lot of points or a lot of tries. It doesn't. There's not a very high percentage of scoring from that. Uh, I think that is an option to consider, however. If it's a close game and you can't kick the points and you want to stay camped down in your opposition's territory, 
you know, if it's waning minutes of a, of a game, if it's a two-point game and maybe there's a wind in your face, you win that ball in a lineout and you drive it and you keep it tight, not only does it buy time, uh, but the attack not only has to get it back, the defense not only has to get it back, they have to go 95 to score. So that I think that's a consideration, what time of game it is, what the score, what the win situation is like. Um, the, the, the tap that's organized into an attacking formation is another thing to consider. It basically is like winning a scrum in terms of the ball is in your hand. The difference is that the defense is spread out. So if you do tap, you basically should have a pattern ready to play from that. Uh, the problem is that uh, a lot of teams play willy-nilly from that. They'll take a tap and not really have a plan of what they want to do. Uh, I think the best thing to do is to play a pattern that you already have in your repertoire, set that up, and, and take take a little bit of time. You know, Obviously, you want to do it as quickly as possible, but you want your team to be ready to execute in, in a manner that they've prepared for. Um, and just taking a quick tap where everyone's going you know, 100 miles an hour without a plan uh, a lot of times ends up in, in failure. So uh, those are just some of the advantages, disadvantages, options that you're tactical decision maker should be thinking about and your coach during the week when you're training for these things. All right, Mike, Mike Tolkien, thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, your uh, knowledge of the game is, uh, is, uh, is absolutely tremendous and we appreciate you passing on some of your, your uh, experience uh, to our Rugger Matrix audience. Now, Bruce, I have taken delivery of the Rugger Matrix cap and it looks sharp. You know, Juro, you sent me that picture of you in the cap. It looks fantastic. And I think that you're going to get the first cap is going to be going to one of our greatest guests, one of your favorite American rugby people, if not your favorite. Uh, give us a little rundown of what's going to happen with that first cap. All right. The first cap is going to none other than the American Eagles captain, Todd Clever, who I'm hooking up with either this week or next week. Uh, the Lions are in Australia, and uh, he's all pumped. I'll be putting the uh, hat on his head, and he'll probably help us promote it. He's a good fella, and uh, I, I don't know, Bruce, I'll probably go, this is a good way to support Rugger Matrix USA, actually. So um, it's it's one way of us of, of keeping the show uh, going along each week, and, uh, you know, they'll only be about 25 bucks or so US, and um, it'll be certainly worth a gift, and... You will definitely be part of the in-crowd if you have one of these caps. The logo looks stunning. There's nothing better than the red, white, and blue in a white cap. You know, they always say when the Australians... The Australians actually have a drinking game in America when they're driving home from a, from a game or something on a bus because Americans... A lot of Americans put out the American flag. So the Australians will have a drinking game that every time they, ha they see an American flag, they have to drink. And when they're four or five hours away from home, you could, uh, <laughs> you could see that a lot of Australians turn into, uh, <laughs> a... turn into New Zealanders. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, that's a lot of beer turned into a Kiwi. But, uh, yes, it's a very good tactic because the, the flags are out everywhere, and so they should be. It's fantastic. So, Bruce, uh, one of these, and Mike, one of these hats will be making its way across the New York City. I'll be getting a few of my uh, friends in the rugby uh, family around the world to put them on as well. But we're going to start off with Todd Clever, so have a look out for that next week. And, and Bruce, uh, what I'm going to try and do is get him into my studio and, and try and have him live 
the best audio quality possible and we'll have a hookup. So uh, he's all pumped up. Good to see him here. Good to see him score a try with the Lions too. And uh, he's getting an Australian mobile phone too. So I don't know what that means. It means it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. All right. So um, uh, look out for that on the store. You'll be able to buy that uh, very, very shortly. That is Rugger Matrix USA for this week. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. Good luck with the next couple of weeks as you prepare for Super League. Thank you, Jero. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Love talking rugby and uh, looking forward to the spring season. Bruce McLean, thank you. Big year ahead. It's all starting to happen. Yeah, we're really excited. I'm very excited for the prospects of the Super League. It's it's nice to see the teams are uh, teams are focused and they're prepared, and I think it's going to be a great season, and it's up in the air who's going to be winning because there's a lot of good teams out there that are very well coached, and, and they're going to be optimally prepared, and hopefully we'll be giving uh, Mike and Dan and Dave and, and Matt and Eddie some uh, – and Bill. <laughs> can't believe I forgot Bill after the whole weekend with him um, – Give you some good talent to having the Eagles in the Churchill Cup and the fall tours. And it's starting to shape up that uh, I think U.S., I think Georgia or Russia are going to be the one and two spot in New Zealand They play in, 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 in the Europe thing. So we're going to probably play the winner or the loser of the Russia-Georgia match So in, in the World Cup. So it's everything's starting to shape up there, Mike, Juro. I think it's good. All right, gentlemen, thank you. That is our Rugger Matrix episode 11, Rugger Matrix USA episode 11. We'll speak to you next week.